John chapter 17, picking it up in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your scripture unto us, that we might apprehend and own and appreciate the love that thou hast for us, how deep it is, how it is the same as the love that thou hast within the Godhead. Lord, we would pray that we would understand that, apprehending it, and trust in thee for all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I had our deacon read this morning in, from the book of Hebrews, uh, ch- um, chapter 11. We picked it up in verse 23 through verse um, 40. And it's a wonderful statement about how God has led his people, protected them by faith, done all these wonderful things um, for their benefit um, by faith. Um, And Christians tend to think that that's going to be their life too. (laughs) You know, we might want to garner material wealth for ourselves, rationalizing that, well, you know, he, he gave Abraham a lot of stuff and he gave Isaac a lot of stuff. And by golly, David and Solomon were quite wealthy so that, you know, he could do it for me and he would bless me in that way. Um, And then in verse 35, it kind of takes a turn there where it says, women receive their dead, raised to life again. That's all good. And then it switches. And others were tortured. Well, that's not what I think. (laughs) That's not something I look forward to. You know, like, is he really still talking about the same people? Well, he is. Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trials of crew mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report, obviously through faith, received not the promise. That would be the promise of eternal life, the new heavens and the new earth, the glorified body. They didn't get there, and neither have we. Uh, God having provided something better for us that they without us should not be made perfect. This process of the perfection of man has not yet been completed, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in John chapter 17 this morning. But one of the things we should appreciate when we look at that is this this march of faith or this example of God's uh, working in these individuals by faith is bookended. The first person that comes upon the scene and is mentioned is Abel. 
And how did things go for Abel? Why, he was slain by his brother. So it's really bookended. The, the, um, the blessings that we see in terms of people's uh, uh, material prosperity and their walk of life, notwithstanding the struggles that all Christians have, um, is bookended by Abel, who was slain in the beginning here because of his faith and his righteousness, and those that were slain at the end here. So that brings into focus, I hope, um, maybe a better appreciation of what God has in view here when he says in verse 12, Jesus speaking here in John 17, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus says, I have kept them in thy name by the authority of God. They belong to God. In verse 9, he says that, um, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. So they belong to God, they were given to Christ, and he has kept them by authority to Christ, uh, by, by the authority of God. And verse 10 says that they belong to Jesus and to God. So there's mutual ownership here, but in the context of what's set before us here, they belong to God, and the, of God the Father gave them to God the Son. So by way of general application, big picture here, we should appreciate that what things are given to you and me still belong to God. So he's saying, you've given me these people, but they belong to you. They belong to both of us here. And we will give an account to God, to our Heavenly Father, for what things we have done with the things that God has given us. And we see that in Matthew chapter 25, where there's the parable about those, uh, an individual given five talents, an individual given two talents, and an individual given one talent. They all give account to God what they've done with those things. And our prayer certainly is that we would use things um, to God's glory and to prosper his ministry so that he would say unto us, Welcome into the joy of thy Lord, thy good and faithful servant. Have we borne fruit with the things that God has given us? Borne fruit to God's glory. Clearly, Jesus in here is kind of giving an account of what he's done. Hey, I've lost nobody. I've given them the glory you've given me. I've given them the words that, that you've given me. I have lost none. So just as Christ is giving an account, and in his case, he has done nothing but bring God glory, and we would pray that we would do the same with the things that God has given us. So we typically think of material wealth because that's where the parable and the talents are. He's given me certain things, and have I used them for God's glory? But we really need to appreciate it from the prospect of what skill set has God given us that we um, might use for his glory? So in Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about some are prophets, some are evangelists, some are pastors, some are teachers. We know that some people are given the gift of hospitality, some are given the gift of encouragement, and some the gift of exhortation. And so people have different gifts. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about the church, the body of Christ, as a body with different gifts. Somebody's an eye, somebody's an ear, somebody's a hand, somebody's a foot. And we need all of these um, gifts exercised so that the body might act um, as a whole and, and function properly for God's glory. So again here we see that with respect to Christ, acknowledging receipt of God's of things that God has given him, and then that he has given them to um, the people that God has given him. So um, he also states here that he has finished the work that God has given him to do. And he's ready to go up uh, and be with God in glory, that the glory that the Father has and has given him. And so being that he's going, I've kept them and I have proactively walked, watched over them and protected them, he has protected his disciples literally from the religious leadership that um, might desire to um, go after them, but they had not done that yet. They were going, went constantly after Christ, and they didn't go after the disciples until after Christ departed, 
and then they began to preach Christ, which they endeavored to prohibit them to do, with one exception here, and that, of course, is Judas, which he, Lord makes reference to in verse 12, the son of perdition. He is singled out here, in particular, as one whom was lost. And so what we must appreciate from that, from what we see here and what we read in the book of Acts, is he was not given to Jesus from the Father. He's not one of those that was the elect from the foundation of the world. He was not one of those that was given to Jesus. God, who, of course, is the author of the Bible, spoke about Judas in particular a thousand years before he lived, a thousand years before he betrayed Jesus. We should always appreciate that the Bible... um, Being written by God, he tells us beforehand what things are going to happen, um, and we know how this story is going to end. God writes history in advance. We know how it's going to end in 2 Peter chapter 3, and we know from the book of Revelation how this is all going to work itself out. Nothing is out of God's scope of authority. Everything goes exactly the way um, he wants it to go. And one of the reasons I'm making this point is because of the... um, uh, the very terrible thing that happened in Uvalde, Texas this, this week. We must never think that anything is out of God's scope of authority and control, as grievous as it is for us to uh, appreciate these things. God is sovereign, and I certainly pray that he will reveal himself to these people in a way that comforts them. But again, um, God is sovereign over everything. In Acts chapter 1, verse 16 through 20, it speaks particularly about Judas. Peter speaking here, he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake concerning Judas. He's telling us that the Psalms that David wrote were written by the Holy Ghost, that God is the author of the Psalm, not David. And it's specifically those ones that he's making reference to spake about Judas, he says, which was guide to them that took Jesus. Verse 17 of Acts chapter 1. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the mist, and all his bowels gushed out. So he was numbered with them, he obtained part in the ministry, but he was not given by the Father to the Son. Verse 19, and it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that is the field is called in their proper tongue, Al-Seldama, that is to say, the field of blood. And verse 20 says, for it is written in the book of Psalm, that would be Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein and his bishopric let another take. Now in John chapter 17, verse 11, the Lord um, is continuing to petition, and he says, And now I am no more in the world, meaning to keep them as I have kept them, but these are in the world, the disciples, these eleven are in the world, and I come to thee, Jesus is departing the earth, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. So did God the Father do that? Well, you get to Acts chapter 7, and we read about the stoning of Stephen. Did we not read about him in Hebrews chapter 11 there? Some were stoned. Stephen was stoned. In Acts chapter 8, we read about a great persecution against the church at Jerusalem. And we know that Saul, who later becomes the apostle Paul, compelled Christians to to blaspheme. He persecuted them unto death. In Acts chapter 12, James, the brother of John, is killed. 
Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, um, the Lord, uh, using the Apostle Paul to write here, we read about Paul being offered up. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'll read that 6 through 8. It says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. The question I'm laying before us here, did God keep his saints? What is in view here? We read about as soon as Christ goes to the cross, persecution starts, and then saints are being killed. Verse 7. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. If you love the appearing of the Lord, you will get a crown. Now, drop down to verse 16 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. It says, At my first apparent answer, this would be before Caesar went in his trial, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be held to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. The Lord has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He's saying, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, either God is a miserable failure in the charge given to him by Christ, and Christ's um, statement to him is in the aorist active imperative, which means that he's commanding God the Father to do something that he has the authority to command him to do. Recall in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, that Christ, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Why would he not think it's robbery to be equal with God? Because he is God. So he's given his father a charge to keep those that are given to him. So either God's a miserable failure in that charge or something else is in view here. And there is something else that is in view here. And the, the um, reason he asks him to do it in verse 11, he says, those that we may be one, that they may be one, excuse me, that they may be one as we are one. Keep them that they may be one as we are one. He doesn't say keep them, that they'll stay in this world forever, but that they may be one as we are one. The only way unity between the saints is achieved is by being in Christ and Christ being in them. We are one in Christ. The Lord says that down in verse 21. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So something different, obviously, than keeping them physically present on this earth is in view here. Jesus' petition is to the Father is that he will keep us in Christ. And the Lord does that very thing. That is Paul's um, understanding or appreciation here, his confidence in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. He says there, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the object of us being kept, is that we'll get to this glorious kingdom. The Apostle Paul is going to get there. That's what he says here. I have confidence that he'll do that. Um, and so God removes his children from this earth through a variety of means. We would all love to die in our sleep, I'm sure, but he does remove some of the saints via a bullet, or via a blade, and we see that happening at least by blade in the scriptures, and we see that happening in the world today. People are removed out of this world through violent means. That does not mean that God failed to keep them um, because we are kept in Christ. 
in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, 1 Peter 1, um, the Lord tells us very plainly about this. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a lively hope living after the cross because we can appreciate the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. It's a reality. It came to fruition. Everything that God had prophesied with respect to that in the Old Testament, it came to reality in Christ. So we have this lively hope. And again, that hope is placed in our heart. Uh, it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. So it's not like we're going to a hotel room that needs to be kept clean because it will uh, get moldy or something. And it's not like you check in after 6 p.m. and they say, well, you know, you checked in too late. We didn't hold your reservation for you and you've lost your deposit. No, it's reserved in heaven for you. It's waiting for us and God will keep us on this earth um, as long as he has work for us to do. When we've accomplished everything, and, and we read that about um, the Apostle Paul, he says, I have finished my race. I have fought the good fight. I am ready to be offered up. Every saint should get to that point in their life where, okay, Lord, I, I believe I'm done with everything that you've set before me, and I am ready to go. Um, verse 5, who, meaning the saints, are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So we are kept by the power of God through faith, which is exactly what Jesus prayed for in terms of uh, verse 11 of John 17. Keep them through thine own name. And so we are kept by the power of God. We will get to glory. There is nothing that can take that away from us here. So the intent of the prayer or the results of the prayer in, in verse 11 there is that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, that the world may believe that the Father has sent the Son. Now, one of the reasons the world will believe that God the Father has sent Christ is because we, the saints, in whom, to whom, rather, to whom the Father sent Jesus, we will be like Christ. We will have been conformed to his image by virtue of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, having received the Holy Ghost, which works in us to conform us to the image of his Son. In 1 John chapter 3, 1 and 2, the Lord speaks about this. 1 John 3, 1 and 2, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Small s, we are the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not. It's not has not yet happened yet. People do not yet believe that the Father sent the Son, and they do not believe that the Father sent the Son unto us. They do not yet know us as sons of God. It's, and it says that, the, therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. They didn't know Jesus as the Christ. They didn't understand that. He was in the world. The world was made by him. The world um, knew him not came unto his own, and his own received him not. The world did not know that Christ is the Son of God, capitals, and therefore they certainly don't know that we are sons of God with a little s. Verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Right now, we are all sons of God. Though. We are partakers of the divine nature. Christ is in us. We are sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
We're going to see Christ as he is when he comes, and so is the rest of the world. Revelation 1.7, Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. We know that when he comes, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow all things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The world will see him for who he is and will acknowledge that the Lord sent him for us. So when the Lord comes, the world will believe that the Father sent the Son. Everything that Jesus asks for comes to fruition. <laughs> if, the Lord, if the Lord says here that um, keep them, that those that... Uh, Keep them through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. We will be one. We are one with them. The world will believe that the Lord sent him. Um, they shall see him as he is, and they shall see us like him. Now, consistent with this, in verse 22 and 23 of John 17, we see that the glory the Father has given the Son, the Son has given us, which will be manifest to the world when he comes, they'll see Christ for who he is, and they'll see us as his sons. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 speaks about this, and it says, As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Again, 1 John 3, 2, When he shall appear, we shall be like him. And again, affirming this down in verse 23 of John 17, Verse 23 says, I in them, and thou, that would be the Father in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know. Now in verse 21, he says, that the world may believe. Here he says, now that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Here again is the intent, that the world may believe that God the Father has loved the saints, the elect, the Christians, same way that God the Father has loved God the Son. They're going to know that. Now, with God the Son in us, in the believer, and the Father in the Son, God is in the believer. So phrase it any way you want. Quite frankly, the entire Godhead indwells the Christian. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The whole Godhead is in the believer. Now, the perfection that's referred to here in verse 23 speaks of us as having reached the creative goal God intended for certain men. When God, plural, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Back in Genesis 1.26, God said, Elohim, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So through unity with the believer, God accomplishes that very thing. And so we are said to be made perfect. If I can use an example here of a vase, um, a vase, a crystalline vase sitting on a shelf looks like it's absolute perfection, but in the context of Scripture, it's not perfect until such time as it contains water and flowers, because that was what the purpose of the vase was, was to um, contain flowers. And so we are vessels of mercy uh, prepared to, uh, for God's glory. Are prepared for glory. We read about this in Romans chapter 9, verse 21, where he says, Hath not the potter power 
over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? The answer is an obvious yes. It's a rhetorical question. God has the power, he's the potter, to make uh, of the same clay one vessel unto honor and one unto dishonor. Verse 22, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory. Even us, we are the vessels of mercy, which are prepared unto glory, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Greeks. When the Lord comes on that day, it will be um, revealed to everyone who the vessels of glory are and who the vessels of glory are not. The world will know that Christ was sent by the Father to do these things, that, that we, are, we have been made perfect and that it is the work of God that has come to fruition, that he ordained such a thing for certain men. So in verse 23, we see when the Lord comes, the world will know that the Father has sent the Son, that he has sent them to save and redeem a people unto himself, that we are the vessels prepared unto glory. They will know that. So um, they will know and they will believe that he loves us as much as he loves his Son. And how could it be otherwise? Because we are united and we are one with God. We are loved by God the Father with the same intensity as he loved the Son from before the foundation of the world. And that's a difficult thing for us to comprehend and own, but we should because God says it is true. So as evil a place as this world is, with all of it, and I'll use this in quotes, natural disasters, as though God were not sovereign over everything, with all of its violence and perverse sin, with Satan making war with the saints and overcoming them in the flesh anyway, as it says in Revelation 13, our salvation was never and is never in jeopardy. In spite of everything that goes on in this world, our salvation was never and is never in jeopardy. Being in God and God being in you, our salvation is as secure as God Almighty himself. It is as secure as he who spoke all things into existence. It is secure as he who rules and reigns over all things. It is secure as he who will melt, burn, and dissolve all things and bring in new heavens and a new earth. Your salvation could not be more secure than it is. It is secure as God Almighty himself. Now in verse 24 of John chapter 17, Jesus prays that we might be with him and behold his glory. His desire is that we should apprehend these truths, be anxious for nothing, and thankful for all things, and rest in him, knowing that all is accomplished. Now, his prayer obviously is answered through the cross. Now, these things that he has prayed for come to um, fulfillment in terms of being with him and beholding his glory. In Ephesians chapter um, 2, we appreciate that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he raised the entire body of believers with him. It says in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love with where he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. We were quickened together with Christ. By grace are ye saved 
verse 6, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Again, a fulfillment that the people will believe that God sent him. The people will understand. They will know that God sent him and that God loves us as he loved the Son. They will see this thing. These things will be revealed. And so we are with him in his glory, which, of course, takes the, um, the grace of God that you would apprehend that and appreciate that. He has said he has raised us up together and we sit together with Christ in heavenly places. The Christian is in two places, as is Christ. Christ is in heavenly glory, and he's also in the heart of the saint. The saint is here on this earth, communicates with God the Father through the Son. The Son is in us, and we are sitting with him in his throne. He talks about that in the book of Revelation. He that overcometh will I allow to sit in my throne, as I am set down in my Father's throne. So we are sitting in the throne of God with him now because of what Christ has done. Positionally, we are with him. Um, in glory. Though we are down here in this earth, you know, the scripture talks about our conversation is in heaven. Our government's in heaven. Our heart's there in heaven. We look for the coming of our, our, our Savior from heaven. So, admonition, of course, to us is do not let this world get us down. Let us keep our eyes on Christ. God loves us as much as he loves himself. He couldn't love us more. He has always has what's in best for us in view. I mean, we're familiar with um, all things work together, for them that love God, it's a qualifying statement. The love of the Father is in us. We love him. So all things, as horrific as they may seem, work together for our good. So we must ever keep our eyes on Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, it speaks of this glorification of the saint in the past tense. In Romans 8, 30, it says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So God speaks of it from his perspective as though our perfection is already accomplished. So sure is the um, reality of its completion that God speaks of it as something that has already been done. Um, Romans chapter 4 verse 17 sets that before us because when uh, the Lord spake of Abraham, he spake, he said, I, will, I have made thee, not I will make thee a father of many nations. I have made thee a father of many nations. That would have been before Isaac was born. God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. God calls things which he has not yet accomplished in scope of time as though they are accomplished because they're already accomplished in him. So, so sure is the accomplishment of it. It's as though it is already done. Now in verses 25 and 26, Jesus would have us to know that his heavenly Father is righteous, and that the love that his Father and that uh, the love that his Father has for the sons, for his sons, excuse me, is in the saints, and Christ is in the saints. Now, for all of this to be true with respect to his Father's righteousness, here we are on the eve of the cross. We should appreciate that God the Father shall see the travail of his soul, shall see the travail of Jesus' soul, and shall be satisfied. Jesus will be successful in accomplishing our redemption. By his knowledge, that would be Christ's knowledge, Christ taking our sins upon himself, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus is going to accomplish everything that the Lord has set before him. And as far as Christ is concerned, in terms of the things that he has said here, he says, I have finished, past tense, verse 4 of John 17, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Well, not in time yet. 
When he goes to the cross, then he says, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost. So through the work of the cross, the righteousness of God will be imputed to the saints, and that the love of our righteous God will be in us. Now, as I finish up here, I want to talk a little bit about verse 20, um, so we would appreciate what is written there. In John 17, verse 20, we read, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. Um, in verse 9, he had said, I pray not for the world. So I want us to appreciate the exclusivity, the exclusive nature of this prayer. And I know that's not popular in the world, but there's a real exclusively to this prayer that um, the Lord sets right before us here. So several simple gospel truths are manifest in that verse 20. I pray Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their words. We should appreciate the doctrine of election. He's only praying for uh, a certain number of people. He is not praying for the world. He is only praying for those that are given to him. Judas is not in that group, was not given to him. He was there. He walked with them, but he was not given by the Father to the Son. It is not for people who believe in themselves or in some other agency, or some other gospel. It's only for those who believe in me, believe in Christ. It is only for the 11 disciples and those that shall believe on Jesus through the preaching of their word. In other words, only those that believe through the preaching of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, we say, we read, it says, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The preaching of the gospel is the methodology that God has used to make his word known to believers and to quicken them by application of the Holy Ghost. Verse 18 of uh, 1 Corinthians 1, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. The preaching of the gospel mixed with faith, that's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. In Ephesians 2, we know that uh, faith is a gift. The preaching of the gospel mixed with faith and then that hear it is the methodology God uses to save people. And it has never changed from the time when the Son of God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve and preached the gospel to them, when Adam preached it to his son Abel and all the way down, it's been only through the preaching of the gospel. And the Lord again affirms that here, that he's only praying for people that will believe on him through the preaching of their word. And so all of the wonderful things that the Lord preaches, uh, excuse me, his petitions here in John 17 about knowing God and knowing Christ, for that is eternal life, about union with God God the Father and God the Son and the unity between the saints, that we might appreciate the boundless depth and breadth and scope of God's love applies only to those that are given from the Father to the Son. And these are all wonderful truths that we should meditate on and pray for a better apprehension of so that we would truly rest in Christ and truly trust Him in all things. Amen. Amen.